Welcome to this podcast from the Environmental and Energy Law Program. Today, R.A. Pesco is speaking with Phil Sharp to mark the 40th anniversary of the Public Utility Regulatory Policies Act, or PERPA. They discuss the law's legacy and what it suggests about climate change legislation. We hope you enjoy the podcast. This is Ari Pesco, Director of the Electricity Law Initiative, and I am so pleased to be joined today by Phil Sharp, who is a member of of the House of Representatives from 1975 to 1995, representing the people of East Central Indiana. He continued to be a thought leader after leaving Congress, particularly on energy and environmental issues. He headed Harvard Kennedy School's Institute of Politics and the Environmental Economics Think Tank Resources for the Future. Phil, thank you so much for being here today. Happy to be with you, Ari. So last week was the 40th anniversary of the National Energy Act, which includes PERPA. Uh, And I want to talk about that. But before we get there, the other big event last week was the midterm election. The Democrats gained about three dozen seats in the House, and that's their biggest midterm gain since 1974, which was your first election. And I'm curious if you could tell us, obviously there was a lot happening in the national scene at the time, but what role did energy policy play in in your first election and and at the national scene at the time? Well, first of all, I don't think it played a direct role, that is, in that we were all debating it, but it was something that was of great concern to people, and and the rising price of the energy, particularly oil, it, it was, but there was a broader inflation issue, so I don't want to diminish that, it's just in question of how much actual debate about policy there was, uh, probably different, different around the country, uh, but it was part of the economic uh, and security concern of the time. Of course, the big issue then was uh, the resignation of Richard Nixon. I imagine that was a dominant issue of the campaign, which had happened just a few months earlier. That's right. And in that way, it's very similar today. The big issue was Donald Trump. And uh, in some of the Senate races, they probably were victorious because of that, but they clearly lost the House, I think, uh, not just because of that, but that was certainly a factor in the, in the election. So I want to fast forward a little bit to the next Congress, 1977, President Carter is inaugurated, you win re-election, and just two weeks into his term, he gives a televised speech uh, wearing a sweater, sitting in front of a fireplace, and he starts off talking about energy issues, and he says, we must face the fact that our energy shortage is permanent. But if we all cooperate and make modest sacrifices, if we learn to live thriftily, remember the importance of helping our neighbors, we can find ways to adjust. I was wondering, what what was your reaction to that message that we all, Americans need to sacrifice on energy issues? And what was the reaction uh, in Congress to that sort of message? Well, I think uh, when you use the word sacrifice, uh, probably people didn't jump on board uh, for that. But I think there was a lot of agreement, one, that it was a national priority. And it had been, uh, beginning with Richard Nixon, uh, who called for Project Independence uh, after the Arab uh, uh, embargo, the Arab oil embargo, as it was called at that time in 1973, had really come as a very shock to the American foreign policy establishment and added to a concern about turmoil uh, in the Middle East at a time, of course, that we still were in the Cold War and still competing with uh, the Soviet Union. 
So uh, Carter was capturing an issue that he said had not been adequately addressed, but it was something that throughout the 70s and even into the 80s was an overarching issue in, in our country. In fact, one of the important points I think that makes it relevant today is that it was an effort during that era, and certain Carter's NEA, National Energy Act, uh, proposals uh, were an effort to really not just alter the uh, energy markets in the country, but really to transform it. And the transformation, one of the major challenges was it was cheaper for us to keep buying more foreign oil than it was to uh, produce. Uh, we could produce more in the country, but it was at a increasingly uh, costly to do offshore in Alaska. Uh, and then in all kinds of ways that you were going to try to get oil out of the shale rock in the, in the Colorados. So trans, trying to transform the system and trying to overcome an advantage that the uh, foreign oil had is very similar to today on climate, where we're trying to really transform the energy system, and then in this case to try to overcome the cheapness that, had, that has prevailed for those uh, uh, greenhouse gas emissions that come from coal, oil, and that even from natural gas. Uh, and so that was the broader uh, context that I think. There's one other contextual thing before we go to um, the uh, what the, Henry, the Carter program was recommending, and that was you have to remember that in the early 70s, we were into an inflationary period. Inflation was somewhere around 5%. It bounced back and forth. And the Nixon administration, with the Democratic Congress having given them authority, imposed economy-wide wage and price controls. Probably a very unwise policy, but it was adopted, and that meant that oil prices domestically in the United States, gasoline, the fuel oil that was critical in New England, were actually price-controlled. Uh, and that meant you had to allocate scarce resources. This was uh, probably, again, another major mistake uh, in policy, but that prevailed, and it led to a massive political argument for the next decade over uh, whether we should have price controls uh, on the oil uh, system. Uh, and if we look a little more broadly, starting in the 70s, on the, what's happening in, across the way in energy markets in general is, uh, first of all, as I've already said, uh, the oil prices were rising because uh, of internal costs, but also because the international price had gone up uh, with the oil embargo, among other things. Uh, and, um, and and there were, began to be the argument of that, which Carter was in a sense making of peak oil. That is, that we are running out of the resource certainly as an American resource. We don't know when exactly, but we know it's becoming scarcer and scarcer. The natural phenomenon of oil and the ground that we can reach uh, is coming to an end at some point here. And so we had rising imports of foreign oil. The other was on natural gas. Natural gas, it was a similar kind of proposition where we'd had since 1954 with a Supreme Court decision, we'd had control of wellhead price of natural gas, that is, where you're pumping it out of the ground, uh, and a price control very low on that, uh, and uh, for anything went into the interstate market. Uh, and here again, the assumption was we are running out of this resource. And I want to get to uh, the, uh, the the point that you made uh, just earlier about this was really what was happening here, or what, was, what, what Carter intended was a real energy transformation. 
And, right. you know, you compared that to our challenges today, and, and really both are, are long-term propositions. The idea that we're going to be able to conserve enough, as Carter had hoped, that, that we could really make an impact and at the same time unlock new supply. I mean, you know, how does Congress approach that sort of long-term issue? And really, you know, I, when I think of Congress, I think of trying to get short-term political wins. But here you are facing a generational problem. Well, that's right. Uh, and, and the argument was, uh, and it was widely agreed to, uh, on it, that one, we're running out of oil. Two, the price of oil will continue to rise. In fact, the speculation was it would be at $100 uh, by, I think, 1980 or 1985, something like that. Uh, none of this panned out. Uh, but uh, that drove people to agree to all kinds of interventions uh, uh, in the economy. But you're not wrong about the political challenge was that there were people had different ideas of what they were willing to support and different goals. So the national security goal of cutting foreign oil was important, and it was also argued that that would be better for our economy. But the, the fact was that uh, consumer interests were very concerned about the rising price of gas and oil, so they strongly supported keeping the control price controls on, which by the way, we're frustrating our ability to both conserve and to produce more. Uh, and, then, uh, and, and also you had major equity uh, issues, fairness issues coming into play where we're saying, wait a minute, don't hurt gasoline consumers. Uh, they have almost no choices. Uh, they have to drive. They have to have this. By the way, that's another of those kind of uh, excessive myths <laughs> that they're incapable of uh, making any changes. Uh, and, and you also had a major regional uh, argument going on about uh, what's fair for producing parts of the country, uh, Texas, Louisiana, Oklahoma, versus what's fair in industrial parts like Indiana, Ohio, and in the Northeast. And, and by the way, the, it was so intense that there were uh, bumper stickers in Texas uh, in which they were so angry with the federal approach to trying to limit uh, prices on oil and gas and, and therefore on production, in their view, uh, was that they had bumper stickers that simply said, let the bastards freeze in the dark. <laughs> well, that, that's not a great policy option. Um, but so, you know, we've talked about the, you know, obviously the issue in the oil market seemed to be the the dominant issue at the time, but there were problems in the electric sector too, um, right. and, and maybe, you know, so, you know, oil at the time was a major fuel source, particularly in the Northeast. So that, that led to higher prices. But what were some of the issues that Congress saw in the electric utility space? Well, and also the oil was already, you have to remember, there were several policy developments under Nixon and Ford uh, with the Democratic Congress working with them that had already begun to move the oil out of the uh, the generation market. So it was never a high percentage, but it was relevant. But there were other issues that came, and one was the rising cost of electricity. Basically, electricity, from a consumer's point of view, had either been flat or declining over the, the number of years. And suddenly we were in a new world where they had built all these uh, not, uh, number of uh, nuclear power plants, uh, all of whom uh, were, most of whom were in trouble in terms of they were only running maybe 60% of the time instead of as they are today, 90% of the time, so they were very costly. The additions of new power plants, coal or uh, nuclear, were actually beginning to mean you had to raise prices to add electricity. In other words, you were losing out these economies of scale that had been so much a part of 
the economics uh, of uh, electricity in the country because, and the expectation was that we would still have demand growth of around 7% a year, which now we were almost flat uh, kind of thing. So there was going to be need to add electricity. It was going to be expensive, and that was politically very sensitive in many states where the uh, utilities were going into the utility commissions and asking uh, for a raise. So that's partly why electricity, not just to reduce the oil, but why electricity got onto uh, the agenda in a big way. So I understand, you know, of course, when, when electricity prices go up, it becomes a political issue. But electricity rates had historically and continue to be really a local issue, a state issue. Um, you know, I'm wondering what, what did compel Congress to get involved in, in utility rate making? Because that's kind of, you know, that was one of the big aspects of PURPA was, exactly. was, was kind of, uh, you know, requesting that states consider all sorts of new rate making techniques. It was a big move for Congress to get involved in this space. No, that's right. And, and it was primarily from the national consumer groups and labor and uh, others who were who felt that they utilities had the political power, they uh, had a political grip on utility commissions. Whether that's true or not, it was certainly a wide-scale belief that the monopolists uh, had political power and uh, therefore you couldn't count on the state commissions to actually keep them disciplined, which was, in theory, uh, one of the things the state uh, utility commissions were supposed to do. So this led to a drive for federal intervention. And uh, as, as you noted, uh, part one of um, PURPA is all about uh, rate reform. Now, the interesting thing is that the House, uh, following on what was proposed by the president of the United States, Carter, uh, they actually required changes uh, in the, um, the rate system, because basically what you had in place in most states, uh, probably everywhere, was um, what were called promotional rates, designed to push more electricity into the marketplace. And um, those were, um, one of them was a declining block, so the more you bought, the cheaper it was for you, and that, of course, was relevant to industry uh, uh, big time. Uh, kind of thing. So uh, not just the groups I mentioned, but the environmentalists uh, also were concerned about this push for just more and more uh, and the consequences for the environment as well as for the cost of energy to everybody uh, kind of thing. So, but what happened is the, the Senate would not go along with overturning state power and state regulation, uh, and they uh, uh, opted for what finally became in the law, which was we simply required the state commissions to have public hearings on these various rate reform issues with the hope that um, that would cause uh, internal forces in the state to actually say, whoa, that's a good idea, let's do it. Yeah, and I think that actually became legally a very significant move. The language in PURPA ended up being consider that state public utility commissions had to consider, but they were not required to adopt these uh, rate-making right. paradigms that, that Congress had requested they investigate. And ultimately, this was brought before the Supreme Court. It was FERC v. Mississippi or Mississippi v. FERC, I can't recall. Um, and, you know, the court court held up PURPA, uh, you know, on the grounds that it didn't wasn't actually commandeering state regulators to really do anything other than just consider. Um, so that ended up being a legally... Uh, significant move. I was interested, though, in the point that you made about, you know, Title I really being a, about sort of a, a political economy issue, really, uh, because the thought was the, the, 
the utilities were uh, too dominant at the state level. But I wonder, you know, were, were they also a political force at the time at the in Congress as well? Oh my goodness, yes. They uh, they had major lobbying efforts, and, and they stepped them up when they began to find that the federal government was getting into issues that they previously had not had to deal with at the federal level. So you had uh, considerable efforts by the utilities uh, to counter uh, this. Uh, and by the way, just to make another point that you were talking about, you were talking about the legal question about federal intervention in the state commissions, and that's a very important question that is not... but, but this conflict between federal and state regulation has been an intense one throughout and still is today as to what is the legitimate authority of the states. Uh, and maybe it's not even a legal question always. It's a question of politically, are we willing to try to have more of a national market as opposed to uh, these individual and regional markets? Uh, and it's, it's prominent today in the discussions about how to uh, have competitive markets. And, and so, and, and you know, one, the other important aspect of PURPA that the one that really lives on today is Title II of PURPA. And that, that's another uh, aspect of the law that I imagine the utilities uh, were against. And it, it required the utilities to purchase energy from co-generators uh, and from certain renewable energy uh, facilities. So here really Congress for the first time was telling utilities they had to buy energy from specific generation sources, what was the thinking behind that in Congress? What was the motivation for that move? Well, I, I think, again, and now the motivation came from uh, various people pushing that. Uh, when you say motivation of Congress, obviously it's never a singular motivation. Um, but it was, it was the notion of, the, again, the, the market power of the utility was preventing us from having additional resources and especially clean resources in the country. So this was an effort to frankly, break into the monopoly power uh, of that. And, of course, it was done with, uh, you know, a small uh, renewal. The qualifying facilities that could get this benefit out of the law were obviously uh, twofold. One was these um, small renewables like uh, windmills and, uh, and maybe solar, though there wasn't a lot of that uh, at the time, and didn't come to be a lot. But the other was cogeneration, which was, again, going back to Carter's speech, was there's a more efficient way we might do this. Cogeneration means you're obviously, you know, in, when you produce electricity, you're, most of it's being done by the production of very of heat first, and a lot of that heat is wasted. And so the issue was, can we make use of the heat, and can we generate electricity uh, at the same time? That's a smarter economic thing to do. Well, what this meant was that actually factories, which were having to produce heat, suddenly could produce electricity because the utility would have to buy it. Uh, and uh, this, uh, no utility, most utilities were not open to this idea that they would have to buy it. They tended to, all, to use as one of their arguments that, of course, they have a high priority on being reliable, meaning that nothing can uh, uh, interfere as much as possible except Mother Nature with you and me receiving our electricity. Uh, and this argument became that, well, if we don't control the grid, the electric wires and the generation and whatnot, you can't maintain a reliable system. Engineers will tell you that. I used to have the utility executives say, well, let me bring the engineers in to tell you. In fact, many of the executives at the time were, had actually been former engineers. Uh, so they had this deep belief that I think was real, but also it was a political justification. I did have one utility some years later, one utility a CEO, 
Earl Nye from Texas, who actually made the joke, and it wasn't a total joke, that he said, you know, the trouble is reliability is the last refuge of scoundrels, <laughs> that everything can be justified uh, on reliability. But so you, you had that issue of, of uh, how, to, how to control it uh, kind of thing, and, and what developed out of that, and you may know better than I do, is the, the, there was a lot more cogeneration that came on, and it became a major source of new electric power in the country because of these provisions from PURPA. But there's a critical issue maybe you want to go to, which is called avoided cost. Well, yeah, that, that's the thing. So, you know, Congress broke the monopoly, but it really left it up to the states to right. do the, the critical calculation of how much are these co-generators going to get paid. And really, that rate is what's going to drive deployment. So Congress really did leave it up to the states. And then you had uh, really you know, wide disparities in, 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 in how this policy was adopted with some states like California and New York offering very generous rates and therefore seeing uh, you know, wide deployment of these of these qualifying facilities, particularly co-generators. But in a lot of states, you know, the utilities worked hard to uh, make sure that the calculation was was very low, and we and we didn't really see a lot of development in in many parts of the country. Well, that's right. In my own state, I don't think there was any development because the state never adopted a, a uh, high cost avoided cost. I don't remember whether it was California or New York, but one of them said the, the, the cost of any new increment of power would be the same as it building a nuclear power plant, which is rather expensive. And so, uh, you know, any, many qualifying facilities could compete with that price, and, and the utility had to buy at that price. And so, you know, the, the, the complaints from the utilities uh, have been there since, essentially since, well, before the law was enacted, and then once it was enacted, uh, they have uh, continued to complain about this requirement that they have to purchase energy. Um, you know, when you look at sort of the motive, you know, the motivations you were talking about of breaking the monopoly, um, you know, what, what do you think the lessons have been from, from this policy? Well, I... I, I... Personally, of course, I voted for that policy, and then I later, in uh, 1992, was a strong supporter of trying to bring some more competition into the wholesale market. And I, I believe it was very important, uh, awkward and not always perfect, but it was very important to change our point of view and our practices with respect to the so-called natural monopoly uh, of the uh, utility system as it had existed, and to discover that, wait a minute, there's lots more things we can do. We can get all other power sources into the system and still run a reliable uh, organization. So there were lots of learnings that came out of it. One, which I've just alluded to, was learning how to manage the grid, the wire systems, without having full control over all of the generating resources and learning how to integrate these resources. Now, this still goes on as an argument uh, as to, well, we now know we can have at least 10% wind and we can do it very easily as wind's intermittent. It's a problem uh, in managing the grid, but we can manage it. And the utilities, some depends on what utility you're talking to, uh, argue, well, 10% is the limit, and then it's 15%, and then it's 20%. We keep learning we can do more uh, because of technological and managerial innovation. Uh, we can do have a, a less, we can integrate more diverse resources. And that was one of the important things to begin, and it's been a constant learning thing. The other was the experimentation with price. So 
as a determined avoided price, different techniques began to be developed, including, well, let's just offer, a, a, you know, a, tell the, the world that anybody who can come in and match this price, why, they'll get the business. And that was the introduction of some competitive uh, 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 efforts uh, to add generation costs, especially I think it started more in New England. Um, and then he um, uh, also created new political stakeholders. The, the, obviously, the new entrants uh, uh, came into this uh, industry, especially electric, big electric users. They began to advocate for change, too. They were never very pleased with the monopoly system to begin with. It was counter to their whole uh, business ethic. Uh, and so they became big forces for more competitive markets on the assumption that would bring prices down. And it, it took about you know fifteen to twenty years before you know today's competitive electric generation markets really started to take shape. But I think they you know they they do go back to this Title II, which really, as you said, you know broke that monopoly power. Uh, so it seems like. You know, from that perspective, I think Title II was a real success in bringing us today's competitive markets. Sure. As a matter of fact, I've just seen these as developmental things. You know what I mean? When you, when you single out a policy and you say, oh, that doesn't make any sense uh, rationally, uh, it's awfully easy to disparage any specific policy at a time. I'll just give you another example of that, something we learned from the 70s and 80s. During the 1970s, we began investing, the federal government did, massive amounts of money in research and development for alternative sources of energy and, and uh, efficiency and, and, and even in production of oil and whatnot. Uh, and in the 1986, when the oil, world oil price dropped significantly, uh, and many of these things were pulled back, many of the technologies didn't seem to be going anywhere, and so... Critics would say, well, see how what a wasteful Congress, what a wasteful government was, even though this was supported on the research side almost universally. Uh, and then guess what happens? In 2004, when the oil prices are starting to rise dramatically, the gas prices had arisen in 2000, suddenly the marketplace is sucking in all of these failed investments by the federal government and by the private sector of new technologies, new uh, processes, and indeed uh, part of that is the fracking that was so popular and so, uh, so important today in, in natural gas. In other words, things don't always pay off at the time, but they seem to have a developmental effect. That's not to justify every foolish thing that Congress or anybody else does, but it's to say you've got to take a little longer view about the value of some of these things in our uh, very complex economy. And I think with that sort of long-term view in mind, I, I want to turn to you know, where Congress might go next um, you know, perhaps in a couple of years, there we might have two houses of Congress that might be interested in climate legislation. You back in you know when in the National Energy Act days were were on the select committee in the House to develop these policies. You later went on to chair the Energy and Power Subcommittee of the House uh, Energy and Commerce Committee when when Congress passed the Clean Air Act amendments of 1990 and the Energy Policy Act of 1992. So these are some of the uh, you know sort of biggest energy policy initiatives in, in Congress over the past 50 years. So you know when you look forward to what climate legislation uh, might look like. Um, you know, what, what might you tell a member of Congress who doesn't have the sort of experience you have working on these big energy policy issues? 
Well, that's a good question, and I'm not. I uh, probably need to give more thought to it. <clears throat> but one thing that I, I uh, would would quickly say is um, it's hard to expect, and I would say this to an outsider too, that in our governing system, in which we disperse political power, states, federal, among the courts, among the Congress, among the president, we disperse powers. It's not very easy to adopt coherent, comprehensive, massive policies uh, long-term that that fit in our uh, uh, governing system, which is huge. Uh, And so uh, one wants to go at this with a little more modesty, even though I think this issue is a compelling issue of our time, and our biggest failure is not to keep at uh, trying to deal with uh, uh, global warming. Uh, kind of thing. But I think there are, there are a number of ways. And first of all, even this next Congress, the past Congress, the Congress we're in right now, uh, to the surprise of many, has managed to keep up some of the research and development and technology that is critical that the uh, Trump administration at first wanted to just totally eliminate, and on a bipartisan basis it was kept going. So there's a major R&D component you want to keep at now, and we can do it in this next Congress, uh, uh, because I think we've got to help develop further options for decision makers in the future. But the other is, there are a whole host of other policies done at the state and, and even at the federal level that I think are useful, but they aren't, they aren't uh, the, the full necessary. Now, one component, I think, it's a necessary but not a sufficient policy, is, of course, a carbon tax. And the reason for that is because our economy is so diverse and depends so heavily on, we, we depend uh, on private investment, meaning somebody's buying something or somebody's willing to invest to make money out of it, that you, you put a price on it and that will definitely help move the needle on this. Now, I do not say this is the be-all and end-all. Uh, we missed a golden opportunity with tax reform to have politically done it. Uh, nobody expected this administration to do it. But the positive thing about that is what happens on most of these energy, environmental, and all other major legislation is there are trade-offs made. It's never everybody, oh, we all agree, so my God, let's just go and, and do this. No, uh, I agree with this, you agree with that, and we make a deal, we bargain to put it together. So you could, on the tax thing, say, sure, you don't like to raise uh, the price of uh, electricity, but guess what? You can give people back a tax benefit, uh, no less Social Security taxes, or previously you would have might given a corporate uh, reduction. The point being, there's a, there are trade-offs that can be made. Those can still be made at some point in the future. Nobody expects it. Uh, immediately. But we're going to keep at this in multiple ways uh, kind of thing. And the big thing to remember, too, is we're, one of the things that is different from the 1970s significantly is we are more part of the global uh, market system. And, of course, this issue is compelling on a global scale. We have to have other countries doing things. But Interestingly enough, one of the reasons that we have more advanced cheap solar in the United States is because Germany and China both pushed hard and aggressively on solar uh, investments, and that cut the cost. Now, we also lost some competitive uh, production here in this country on that, but the point being a lot of innovation products and other things are going to increasingly come from other parts of the world. And uh, we, uh, going back to the solar example, uh, it means that the taxpayer in the United States did not have to 
provide as big incentives as they would have to achieve what's been achieved in the last five to, to ten years uh, kind of thing. So uh, I guess what I'm saying is we're going to come at this in multiple ways, uh, and it's hard to get a comprehensive policy. But the one other thing that I think is important for people in academia and everywhere to realize is it is simply beyond the human capacity, in my view, uh, for us to say, oh, we know what is needed in 50 years, and we'll just plan backwards, and we'll do it all, uh, and we'll adopt it now, and we can argue about this and finally come to an agreement. First of all, I don't think that's politically possible, but I don't think it's intellectually possible either. There are so many changes in the future. Now, let me be clear. Thinking it through and trying to keep thinking it through is very important, but but acting as if you can adopt a 50-year strategy uh, now just misunderstands the constant changes. If we went back to the 70s, and I won't go over now, but uh, there were half a dozen ways in which we were wrong about what was going to happen on technology, on price, even on politics. Uh, and um, so you need to come back at it as the National Academy of Sciences, a huge report uh, focused on what's called adaptive management, and it's just the notion we're going to have to correct the process along the way as we learn, as we judge whether or not we're making progress. And so, by the way, that is more politically appealing to lots of people who also doubt this long term. But we have a number of advocates that say, uh, well, if we just do X, that'll get us there. Uh, and I'm more for so it sounds like what, as many options as you can. Yeah, ahead, it, it sounds like what we need is 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 compromise and, and flexibility. And I hope we can have a Congress that, that can provide those two things. Um, you know, we, we started this conversation talking about the election. So I want to quickly Go back to that, and, and I just I have to mention I apologize for bringing this up that you know you you won you won about a dozen elections to the House, and you are the only person to have defeated Mike Pence in election. You did it <laughs> twice in 1988 and 1990. Now we have his brother Greg Pence uh, was just elected to the House uh, last week. Do you want to make an announcement here today that you will run in 2020 against Greg <laughs> Pence? Could we make some news here today? Absolutely not. I, I think they'll put on my tombstone that I beat Mike, but but he was just starting out, and I was a well-established political figure. It was a Republican-oriented district. I was a Democrat. And, and by the way, um, I did run a dozen times. I only had 10 terms, but I lost the first two general elections. Oh, I wasn't going to mention that. That's okay. <laughs> it takes me a while to get things right. <laughs> well, Phil Sharp, thank you so much for joining us today.